You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, reach in the seats in front of you. You can grab those Bibles and find Mark 13 on page 850. I'm so grateful for Lee White being baptized by fire. Over the last couple of weeks, we've had him host. We've had him lead ASM. We've had him preach. And I'm so grateful that he fed our church the word of God last week as my family and I were in Arizona looking at a school for our two girls, Meg and Mallory. Oh boy, that was surreal <laughs> to be walking on a campus of a university to realize that in a year or two that both of our oldest girls will be uh, in university at college, a little bit uh, overwhelming for us. But it was a joy to know that our church was fed and taken care of. Um, But it was also great for us to be able to be back. We love our church family. And, And if you're new to Ascend, or if you're visiting, maybe you are friends or family of the Beard family or the Heiser family that just celebrated the wedding this past weekend, I just want to remind you what this part of the service is. And you might say, well, we know it's preaching, but, but it's more than that. It's expository application preaching. And what that means is, is that I'm trying to model to you as I preach how to study the Bible how to understand it in its original context. I try to draw out words that are important from the original author. I try to sprinkle in historical context, but I'm also trying to connect the dots, not just living in the passage that we're studying, but connect the dots to the character of God and to other places of Scripture so we can understand why it is provided for us as Christians in the 21st century. And so this is something you can do. And yes, this is my job, and I spend more time studying these passages than probably most people in the church, but it is something we all can and should be doing. And so if you're new or this is your first time and it's a bit overwhelming, here's what I want you to do. Try to take one thing that you learn from this sermon. One thing that points you to the character of God. One thing that points you to Christ. One thing that points you to the cross of Jesus Christ. Take that one thing and have that impact your thinking and living this week. And I promise you that if you'll take that same approach week after week, you will grow in your understanding of God's word. You will grow in your delight in studying it. And you will be able to understand what God intends for all people of all generations to know about himself. Let me read the passage. I'm going to read the entire chapter, so bear with me, but it's going to provide us an opportunity to understand the context. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. 
There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels to gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that it is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Father, I sense once again, even in reading this chapter, that we completely depend on your Holy Spirit. May he illuminate our minds to be able to understand what Jesus meant to the disciples, what Mark meant to his audience, and what your Holy Spirit intends for us. May we take 
these words, may we be informed by the truth that is found in them to be on mission and to long for the return of your Christ. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. People often ask me about many topics from the Bible, mostly because I'm a pastor and they think that I know everything and I don't. But I do know the book that teaches us everything. And the topic that they often ask, especially in the last two years, is about the details of the end times. And especially over the last two years, people will ask me, do you think that all that is going on in our government and with viruses and with wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines, do you think this is the fulfillment of Mark 13? The answer that I will give to you is my explanation of this passage. The big idea that I would present to you is in your notes, but I hope that you will rally around this because I think that this is the point not only of this section and not only of Mark chapter 13, but of all details that the Bible gives us that prophesies the future. And that is this, that the near and far that God reveals to us are intended to remind us with confidence that God is in control. That's what the purpose was of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all of those prophecies of near fulfillment for Israel and far fulfillment for the future. It's to rally the people of God around this concept of confidence that God is in control. But it's even more than that. It intends to motivate us to be on mission and to long for his return. We see that in this passage in Jesus revealing to the disciples, Mark revealing to his original audience, and the Holy Spirit revealing through the prophecies of Scripture that we see what we need to see in order to, number one, be certain. We see what we need to see in order to be certain. Now remember the context for the Jews, there was one building that identify, they identified with the dwelling of God. They identified with the covenant faithfulness of God. They identified with their one true God, and that was the temple in Jerusalem. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so it's no wonder that when Jesus and his disciples walked out of the east gate of the city of Jerusalem, that one of the disciples looked back at that massive building and said, teacher, aren't these amazing buildings in stones? But then Jesus responded to that in, in, in a way that shocked that disciple and everyone who heard. Because for generations, the temple of God had been threatened. It had been threatened by God. There were plenty of prophecies of judgment in the Old Testament that God said, Israel, because you have rebelled, because you have violated my commandment with you, the temple is going to be destroyed. And it was destroyed by Babylon. But God raised up the temple from the ashes. It was threatened by prophecies of the Old Testament. But time and time again, God either restored the temple or he protected the temple with grace. But here Jesus does not provide any out. 
He does not provide any information of grace. He says, this temple that represents the dwelling place of God, that represents the steadfast love of God, that has been a stable reminder throughout your history, Israel, that God dwells with you, will be destroyed. And so it's no wonder that the disciples asked the questions that we would ask if we were Jews in the first century. When? And what are the signs? You know, as a parent, we often respond to the questions of why and when and how in ways that we know our kids need to understand because we see the big picture. And so often our kids will ask the why, the when, and the how, expecting a certain response, but our response often provides more information. And what we're going to see is that Jesus does not just answer their question about the temple's destruction. He actually goes way out into the future to give them more, to reveal the big picture. That's why Matthew, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, adds that they also asked, what are the signs of the coming, of your coming at the end of the age? Now that sets up where we find ourselves when we get to verse 24, but what's important for us to understand is what is the purpose of what Jesus and Mark are doing in this gospel? Throughout all of time, from the beginning of creation, we know that God has designed there to be three roles and three offices that are to be fulfilled perfectly. When God commanded Adam and Eve to take care of the garden and to expand it to the corners of the earth that he had created, he wanted Adam and Eve to exercise the office of prophet, priest, and king. They blew that royally, pun intended. In Genesis chapter 3, they failed all three areas of that, prophet, priest, and king. And so what we see throughout the Old Testament is that God raised up individuals and offices to fulfill the roles of prophet, priest, and king. And often, someone would actually bridge across all three. In fact, I've been reading through 1 Samuel. And when you read 1 Samuel, you'll see that Saul actually exercised king, prophet, and priest, but how did he do I read 1 Samuel 15 today. You can read that this evening, and you can see he failed at all three miserably. And God would raise up prophets, and he would raise up priests, and he would raise up kings, but none of them fulfilled these roles perfectly. So the Jews were constantly looking forward to one who would fulfill all three roles perfectly. And what Mark and Jesus have been doing throughout his gospel is showing that this is the one. He's just revealed that this is the king, the son of David. He's revealed by implication in 1226, this is the priest. He'll show that so vividly in the cross. But what he's done in verses 5 through 23 is shown the original audience and us that this is also the prophet Because what we can see as we look back through history and what these original audience would have been able to see is that the very thing that Jesus said would happen in verse 2 happened in 70 AD. 
And so what we see in this is that what follows, beginning in verse 24, is following on the authority and the affirmation that the one who is speaking is the prophet, the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said that the Lord will raise up a prophet like me, but better. And so based on that confidence, we arrive at verse 24, and it says, but, do you see that word? That word is very important. There are two conjunctions in the original language that are translated but. One is a basic general contrast, and one is an emphatic contrast. Now, why is that important? Why do I take time to dig deep into the grammar? It's because the grammar indicates the flow of the text. And so when we arrive at verse 24, this but is the emphatic contrast. And so what we learn from that is that what has been taking place up to verse 23 is now going to be different in verse 24. And the significance of this is that Jesus, in verse 24, is not going to be talking about the destruction of the temple. He says, but... In those days, after that tribulation, not talking about 5 through 23, talking about something different, what is the something different? Look at the next phrases. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That sounds like the apocalypse, doesn't it? Or does it? Would you write down Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13, listen to what it says in verse 10. It says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellation will not give their light. Interesting. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Sounds similar, doesn't it? Now, what was the Lord referring to here in chapter 13 of Isaiah? What he's referring to is the judgment on historical Babylon. It's not a metaphor. It's not some future world system. It is historical empire of Babylon. Listen to verse 17 of Isaiah 13. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them. We can study history and we can see that the Medes, historical empire, pronounced, exercised judgment on Babylon, historical empire, and guess what? The sun did not darken. The constellations did not fall. The moon did not not give its light. I know that's horrible English. When the Bible uses these words and these terms and these concepts, it's not typically speaking literally. What it's speaking of is that God is intervening in a very intentional and prophetic way. So you can also write down Jeremiah chapter 4. You can write down Ezekiel chapter 32. In Amos chapter 8, historical events with similar vocabulary of the celestial bodies not performing as they're used to performing, but he's not speaking literally. And so now when we arrive at Mark chapter 13 and Jesus uses this same vocabulary, he's not saying, look for a blood moon. He's not saying there will be a day when you wake up and all of a sudden the sun will not shine. What he's saying is God will, just as he did throughout history, intervene in a very intentional way. He's signaling prophetic fulfillment. 
And what is the fulfillment? Look at verse 26, and then they will see the Son of Man. Before I get into the explanation of the Son of Man, notice the grammar. It does not say you. They will see. So remember, I emphasize as I was reading this, you, 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 that is the four disciples of verse four. This is the Peter, Andrew, James, and John. But now when he looks at verse 26, he's talking about they. He's signaling James, John, Peter, and Andrew, and he's signaling Mark, Mark's readers that he's talking about a different event than the destruction of the temple. What is that event? It's the Son of Man coming in clouds. I love this. You can write down Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Daniel 7, 13 talks about the one who is like a son of man who will approach the ancient of days riding on the cloud and the ancient of days will give him an everlasting dominion that will never be taken away. What an amazing context as you read further that it's at that point that the son of man will set up his kingdom, his everlasting kingdom. So what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about Jesus' second coming when he will set up his kingdom and he will send out his angels to gather the elect from all the corners of the globe. What he's doing here is he's growing the disciples and Mark's original audience, as well as us, in our certainty. Now what's interesting here, as well as verse 32 and beyond, we see that Jesus leaves some haziness with the timeline, doesn't he? This is intentional. Read the details of the prophecies throughout all of Scripture, and very rarely does the prophecy give the entire timeline. Maybe some of you have experienced what I have in driving west through Kansas. It is pretty flat. I know you can argue the rolling hills of the, you know, the Flint Hills. It, it's flat. But as you get to western Kansas and you look off into the horizon, you can see what appears to be a wall. And as you get closer, you start to realize that wall is mountains. But it appears from a distance that it is one wall of mountains with a lot of different peaks. But as you start to drive through those mountains, you realize there are miles between those peaks. And that is on purpose in the Bible, that analogy, that God gives us the details. He gives us the peaks that he wants us to understand to leave us in tension. He wants to leave us in the tension, and he very rarely resolves the tension. He's giving details to those disciples and to Mark's original audience about his second coming, but he's leaving it hazy on purpose. The purpose is he wants to give enough for us to know that it is certain Jesus is coming again. Amen? I long for that day. The point of this, as well as the rest of the prophecies in Scripture, is not for us to look for the signs. The point for the prophecies in Scripture are not for us to be enamored with the when. It's for us to be on mission. And we'll see that as the passage unfolds. So we see what we need to see in order for us to be certain. But number two, we see what we need to see 
to be confident. To be confident. So the prophet has spoken. He's moved beyond the destruction of the temple. And now he's talking about a kind of foggy outline that someday in the future, the Son of Man will fulfill Daniel 7, 13 and following, coming on the clouds and gathering the elect. But now we arrive at verse 28. It says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. Now, what is he doing here? He's transitioning. Now, we've talked about the fig tree back in chapter 11, where Jesus cursed the fig tree, but here he's going to use a different story for a different purpose. Verse 28 says, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, he's going from third person plural back to second person plural. That's important. So when he's been talking in the second person plural, he's talking to the disciples and he's been focusing on the destruction of the temple. That's what he's doing here. So he's going back and forth. Right here, he's not talking about the event of 24 through 27. He's back to the destruction of the temple. He says, when you see these things taking place, he said that back in 14, you know that it is near. I won't get into all the technical jargon, but this is probably better translated, it is near. There's no pronoun here that tells us whether it should be he or it. But if you're looking at the context and you're looking at the second person plural and what he's been talking about up to this point, he's been talking about the destruction of the temple. And so he says you will know that it is near at the very gates. And then he says something that I have to be honest with you has puzzled me. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And I've always thought that Mark 13 and Matthew 24 were all about the end times. They were all about the second coming. And so I struggled. How could Jesus say this to people who would die before he came in his second coming? But when you understand the context, because after all, context is king, and when you see how Mark has been developing the words and the intentionality, you understand, oh, this makes sense. Because the generation is around 30 years. And so people who would have been alive when Jesus prophesied this would be alive when the temple would be destroyed. And then he says something very interesting. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away. And that was both a near and a far prophecy. Near, again, we we have to put ourselves in the first century Jews' uh, sandals. The, The historical events that took place when Titus rode into Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed were a tribulation that if you look at what had taken place up to that point and what will take place after that, it would be unparalleled. And so for the Jews, they would have thought that heaven and earth will pass away. And as we look at the rest of the New Testament, we see heaven and earth as we know it will pass away. And that would cause fear to anyone who reads that, wouldn't it? Speaking of fear, my daughters hate needles just like their dad. And so from time to time, we as parents often do, we'll evaluate vaccines and shots and we will say, okay, you guys need to do this. 
And none of our three girls enjoy shots. But one is a Hall of Famer in the drama with which she approaches shots. She will remain nameless. But Macy, oh, sorry. <laughs> Whenever she hears that she's going to get a shot, which is usually on the drive to the doctor, puts on the act. The tears flow, the requests, the demands. And I got to tell you, we just triage the thing. We bribe her. We promise her. We, we, we tell her that we'll be there. And, and I was asking her, so how have you got through 12 years of life having received all of the shots that we said you had to take? And I thought she would say bribes. I thought she would say, you know, her dad. But she said, the fact that mommy's there. So my initial reaction was, you know, I'm standing right here. <laughs> but I get it, and so do you. The presence of mommy makes everything okay. That's what gives her confidence to get her shots. And what's interesting is that Jesus says it is his presence that should give the disciples confidence when all Hades is breaking loose. But what's interesting about this is it's not his presence as they would expect it. They would expect that Jesus would come down on the clouds. They would expect that he would be at the gates, that he would save them from the trial that he had prophesied was ahead of them. But it's not his physical presence that is intended to give them confidence. Look at what he says at the end of verse 31. My words. Listen, beloved, that is the gift that God has given to us. It is his word that is intended to give us confidence. So why don't we study it? Why don't we do it first thing in the morning? Why don't we immerse ourselves in this word that is intended to communicate to us his presence so that even if we wake up tomorrow morning and what's going on in Eastern Europe is going on in Kansas City, that we can be confident that even if we get a diagnosis of cancer, even if we lose our job, even if that expectation of the trust fund or of the investments for the future all disappear, that we would be able to be confident. How is that? It's his word. And so Jesus is giving the disciples exactly what they need to see to be confident. The prophet has spoken. But he also gives more information so that we can see what we need to see to, number three, be commissioned. To be commissioned. Now follow the context. Again, context is king. 24 through 27, he's talking about the son of man's second coming. 28 through 31, he's talking about the destruction of the temple. Now we get to verse 32. But concerning that day. Now would you circle that day? Because when that day phrase occurs throughout Scripture, it is pointing to the end, to the final judgment, to the second coming. So we, Jesus and Mark are using a phrase that would signal the student of Scripture that now he's talking once again about the end times, or the word that is often thrown around in theological circles, parousia. He says, but of that day or that hour, he's going to remind them, it's hazy, the timing is hazy, no one knows. 
Not the angels, not even the Son, only the Father. Why does he say this? Because he's letting them live in the tension of haziness. And we need to be okay with that. He doesn't give us all the details because that's what's not best for us. That is not the purpose of the details. That is not the point. So he gives instruction, and then he gives a story. Verse 33, be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home. Many of you can relate to me. When we were growing up and mom and dad would say they were leaving, we had a lot of questions, didn't we? Uh, when are you going to be back? Uh, what do I need to do before I can play video games? Uh, what questions are you going to ask so I can be ready when I beat my brother and sister up? No, I didn't do that. Well, actually, my brother, sorry. We ask questions. Because an uncertain future generates questions. It reminds me when I was in the church planting training in Chicago. I had lots of questions because my education and my business experience is really tuned more towards solving problems than building something from scratch. And so church planting is building something from scratch. And so I'm not good at that. No wonder I'm a church planter. And I remember sitting in that training, and I had lots of questions. And and one of my most favorite men in all the world, he's on the Mount Rushmore of my life of mentors. His name is Bill Molinari. And he's this Chicago guy, you know. I mean, he doesn't do this with his mouth, but this is the way I do it. And he would sit there, and he would listen to me, asking question after question. And he would just be like, look it, look it, look it. You're called to plant a church, right? Right? Then plant the church. Yeah, but you're called to plant the church. Yes. Then plant the church. And what he was doing for me is the same thing Jesus was doing for his disciples in the story that he provides. He says that the master is going on a long journey. He leaves the home, but he gives the servants exactly what they need. Look at what it says. He charges each with his work. Would you circle that phrase, underline that phrase, rectangle that phrase, whatever you need to do to make sure that phrase jumps out. That's the point of prophecies. That's the point of Revelation. That's the point of Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah. That phrase And then he gives another one that the original audience would have been able to understand that the the doorkeeper stays awake. Why? Because the doors were latched from the inside and the doorkeeper had a job and it was very clear. They were to listen to make sure that only people who were allowed to come in would be let in. Everybody has a job. Do your job. We are commissioned. It's not about, is that him? Is he coming? Oh, is the rustling outside of the door him? It's not about that. It's about do your job. We are commissioned. He says, therefore, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come. And he gives the four watches of the Roman clock. Evening, midnight, morning, 
rooster crows. He says, listen, the point is, lest he suddenly come and find you asleep, not working. Beloved, Jesus does not give his disciples all of the details. In fact, he leaves them with relatively few. The rest of the New Testament gives us more, but it still leaves us asking a lot of questions, doesn't it? And those questions are valid. They are good to be asked, but the point of prophecy is we're commissioned, get to work. So we see what we need to see to be commissioned, number four. We see what we need to to see to be centered. To be centered. So what do we do with this most challenging chapter in Mark until we get to 16? Well, it's found in the phrase at the end, but look at to whom he speaks. Verse 37, what I say to you, four disciples, verse 4 is the context, I say to all. That includes Mark's audience. That includes us. Stay awake. The word is an interesting one. It means be alert and always ready to learn. Always ready to learn. Learn about the gospel. Learn about the mission. Learn about the character of God. Always learning, always studying, always applying, always on mission. So so, so what do we do with this? And see, there's two polar opposites that people will give with prophecy. On one hand, over here, people will wake up every morning or relatively every morning and they will go out to the YouTube channels and they'll look at the headlines and they'll be trying to see, is this the day? Is this the time? When the earthquakes and when the natural disasters will happen, they'll say, oh, is this Mark 13? And what Jesus is saying to that group is, pull back. Listen, there's nothing wrong with the YouTube channels, nothing wrong with the conferences, nothing wrong with the books, but don't miss the point. Approach those things with the lenses of the point we are to be on mission. But then there's other people over here who are like 65 books books of the Bible experts, but the 66th revelation, they're like, bleh. I don't know. God will figure it out in the end. But he gave us 66, just like he gave one and everything in between, to study it and to understand it. And beloved, we can understand it. Can we understand all the details and all the timing? No, we can't. And that's not the point. The point is not to figure out who is Antichrist or whether or not Antichrist is a literal person or if 666 is significant or if a vaccine is the 666. That is not the point of these details. It is not the point to be angry about whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, whether or not you believe in a rapture. It is not to be angry with that. You study it out and you land and you hold it with charity and you dialogue and you keep going back and forth with the lenses of we're on mission. And what is the mission? Lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied to the glory of God. You know what's fascinating is is if we read the rest of the New Testament, we see that different apostles gave more information, didn't they? And the purpose of Revelation 
is captured so brilliantly by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4.18. The context of 1 Thessalonians 4 is that the, the followers of Christ have been taught by the Apostle Paul who taught the teaching of Christ about the end times. And they saw brothers and sisters in Christ who were dying and they're saying, wait a minute, we thought Jesus was gonna come in our lifetime. What is going on? We, I don't understand. They're, they're like so many people today of, oh, is it the end times? Is it seven years? Is it three and a half? And, and they can potentially freak out about it and be driven and emphasize that. And Paul gives them exactly what the New Testament is intended to give us, and that is more details to be on mission. And what he says to those Thessalonians is, that the Lord will return. And those who are dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will what? Meet him in the air. You know what the next phrase is? In the clouds. And he gives a little bit more information, but he doesn't give more than what they needed. He gives them exactly what they need to, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. Guess what? Encourage is mission. Whatever you're going through, whatever loved one you've lost, whatever information you've received, you've got cancer diagnosis, you've lost your job, all of those things that we are tempted to put our trust in, all of those things that if we were told they're going to be falling away tomorrow, we would be tempted to derail in our faith. All of those things that some of you are experiencing right now, and I'm telling you, others of you will, in the years ahead, are intended to be encouraged by the details that Jesus and Mark and the rest of Scripture gives. And it's not to look for blood moons. It's not to be looking for when the sun is going to disappear. It's intended to remind us that God is in control, be on mission, and long for his return. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? There's another piece of this that the details are intended to do, and that is to cause fear for those who are not followers of Christ. Friend, there will come a day when the Son of Man will return in the clouds. It is certain. It is intended to give us what we need to know that day will happen, and we do not know the timeline specifically and perfectly. It's intended to be hazy. In fact, while Jesus was on the earth, that phrase, not even the Son of Man, seems to indicate he laid aside his omniscience in that particular way. It didn't mean that he wasn't omniscient. He chose to remain hazy the side of eternity. That's the best way I can understand. And that's purposeful. It's to keep us in the tension that it's coming, but we don't know when. So friend, listen, if you have not given your life to Christ, if you have not surrendered the throne of your life, if you have not acknowledged not just that you have sinned, but that you are a sinner and that you cannot save yourself and it is only the completed work of Christ on the cross and through the empty tomb and at his place at the right hand of the Father that gives you an opportunity to embrace the gospel. But you must embrace it. You must respond. And if you've never done that, then the return of the Son of Man is intended to make you afraid. So would you take care of that fear right now by committing your life to Christ? 
And then friend, if you have committed your life to Christ, maybe you're one of those polarities. Maybe you don't even think about the coming of the Son of Man. Maybe revelation and all of that is you're just like, no, I'm just about Jesus. Well, revelation is actually the revelation of Christ more than it is the revelation of the end time. So maybe this needs to re-energize you to study it, to understand the purpose, to be on mission, to gain that confidence, to share the gospel with a friend or family member that you're just hoping maybe they'll just see my life. Maybe they'll see my posts on social media. No, the hour is short. Have that conversation. Maybe there are others of you that are just, you just focus on the end times. And instead of you being on mission, you're focused more on the YouTube channels and the conferences. And and maybe you need to be pulled back. You say, let me first make sure I'm on mission. Let me first make sure I'm shepherding my family to the cross. Having conversations with my coworkers, pointing them to the cross. Talking about Christ and not just generic terms of church and faith. Maybe you need to get back on that and have that be the lenses that you're looking at the end times. Whatever it is, the point of this chapter is the same point of the prophecies of Scripture. The near and far remind us that our God is in control and are intended to motivate us to be on mission and to long for Christ's return.